everyone. Uh, Harrison and I just wanted to give a quick content warning. In our discussion today, we talk about emotional and physical abuse pretty consistently throughout, but we will include timestamps in the description for people who want to skip these sections. Now, on to the episode. Hi, I'm Harrison. And I'm Alex. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. And today we are trying on the glass slipper and talking about Cinderella. So in today's history section, we'll cover a few different things. First, we'll continue to discuss the financial struggles the Walt Disney Company faced after the Second World War and explain how that played a role in the way Cinderella was developed and produced. In our last episode, I talked about the Walt Disney Company situation after World War II. Uh, If you skipped the episode because you haven't seen any of those films, well, you should go listen to it. It's good. But if you really don't want to, or if you forgot what we talked about, let me summarize. Essentially, even with the contract work from the U.S. government, the Walt Disney Company was still in a massive amount of debt after the war. The company did not make a profit on their contract work. Uh, Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi were all expensive to make and ended up being financial flops. So the company could only make short films, and they would group them together and package them into four feature-length films. These films all made their money back and turned a small profit, but were not critically acclaimed or even all that popular. And as consequence, the Walt Disney Company began to lose its title as animation powerhouse as MGM and Warner Brothers rose in popularity. The studio was $4.2 million in debt by the end of the war. The release of Fun and Fancy Free in 1947 declined the company's debt to about $3 million, but that wasn't enough. To get an idea of how strapped the company was, Walt and Roy began to explore a possible merger with their distributor, RKO, in that same year. So the company has two routes it can take. First, it can play it safe, make pictures that will get returns, and consider a merger with RKO. Or it can gamble everything on another big feature-length picture. Seeing how Walt acted during the production of Snow White, I think it's obvious which way he went. His brother Roy, the practical, financially responsible Disney, did not like this idea. But Walt wanted to get that top spot again. He wanted to prove that he could still make pictures like Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi. So he went ahead with his plan anyway and decided the film after the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad would be his big comeback. Walt didn't choose Cinderella to be said comeback at first. If you remember from our episode on Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan were already well into production before Pearl Harbor, and consequently put on hold. So how did we get to a point where Disney released Cinderella, a film that really only had a two-year production window first? Walt was familiar with the story of Cinderella before he considered it to be a feature-length picture. Back in 1922, when Walt was doing animated shorts in Kansas City, he made a Laugh-O-Gram cartoon based on Cinderella. Laugh-O-Gram was a film studio in Kansas City that Walt founded after he was contracted by Milton Feld to animate 12 cartoons. It ultimately filed for bankruptcy after two years due to financial difficulties. Uh, Apparently, Walt was living at the studio and taking baths once a week at Union Station in order to make ends meet. Walt had practically no budget for the Laugh-O-Gram cartoons, and that was quite apparent when making the 1922 Cinderella. Uh, Movement is static, jumpy, and repetitive, but that's to be expected. 
As for the storyline, similarities between the Laughogram cartoon and the 1950s picture are scarce. Apart from the standard girl with stepsisters can't go to ball, meets fairy godmother, goes to ball, falls in love with prince, loses slipper plot, both the 1922 adaption and the 1950s film also have animal companions? Uh, and that's pretty much it. It's a more modern adaptation. You can tell by the style of the suburban homes that the ball invitations are delivered to and the flapper dress the fairy godmother makes her Cinderella to wear. It's also extremely short, and a lot of the scenes in the first third are prolonged, goofy scenes. Like, the prince hunts a bear for a while, and then some bears dance, and then they scuffle in a cave for a bit. In general, the prince played a bigger and more notable role in this adaptation, and I kind of wonder if he's in the seven-minute short more than in the feature-length film. Also, I'm pretty sure that the ball was on Friday the 13th. The invitation technically said Tuesday, Friday the 13th, but I think that still means Friday the 13th. I can't really tell. They've invented a new day. It's I guess called so. Tuesday, Friday. Tuesday, Friday. So the presence of the 1922 Cinderella laughogram in animation history shows that Walt was familiar with the story of Cinderella from early on and had the intention of making it a feature-length film for some time. In 1933, he had the idea of making a Cinderella Silly Symphony composed by Frank Churchill. The idea is the first time we see the company have mice and birds in the film as Cinderella's friends. But as they developed this idea, the company decided that it was too complex of a story for a Silly Symphony. By 1938, the company decided that Cinderella would be a feature-length film, and a lot of people showed Walt different story pitches and treatments. While there are a lot of different Cinderella stories throughout Europe, the treatments mostly followed the version written by Charles Perrault in 1697. This is the version of Cinderella that includes the fairy godmother, the glass slipper, and the whole pumpkin turns into a coach bit. Al Perkins notably wrote a 14-page treatment this year. However, Walt did not like any of the pitches. Two years later, another pitch hits Walt's desk. This had more characters with more elaborate names. I'm not going to go into all the names. I'll have a link where you can read more about this treatment. This treatment also followed the Charles Perrault fairy tale closer than the eventual 1950s movie, and the prince had a bigger presence in this version. Uh, there was this whole scene where he hunts a deer only for the audience to find out that, in true Disney fashion, they're friends and were really just playing around outside. There was also this scene where the prince comes home and outright, like, refuses to participate in the ball. But then the animator strike happened. As I mentioned before, this really shook Walt and caused him to not trust his animators as much, and he began to pull away from the animation department. The strike, plus the war, basically put any Cinderella development on hold. By the time the Second World War ended in 1945, Walt was focusing his energies in documentary and live-action film. But he had not forgotten about this idea, and there's still some background work going into Cinderella. A lot of different versions circulated the studio, but remember, the studio did not have money during these years. In 1945, Maurice Rapp was assigned to work on Cinderella after he got into an argument with Dalton Raymond on Song of the South. With his vision of the movie, Cinderella is a lot more rebellious. He did this because he saw the similarities in Snow White's story and Cinderella's story and did not want Cinderella to be passive like Snow White. In David Koenig's book, Mouse Under Glass, Secrets of Disney Animation and Theme Parks, he pulls a quote from Rapt about the decision. He said, quote, My thinking was, you can't have someone who comes in and changes everything for you. You can't be delivered it on a platter. You gotta earn it. So in my version, the fairy godmother said, It's okay till midnight, but from then on, it's up to you. 
I made her earn it. And what she had to do to achieve it was to rebel against her stepmother and stepsisters to stop being a slave in her own home. So I had a scene where they're ordering her around and she throws the stuff back at them. She revolts, so they lock her up in the attic. I don't think anyone took my idea very seriously, end quote. Joe Grant and Dick Humor also worked on the film for a few years, but ultimately abandoned the project in 1947 because Walt gave them an unrealistically low budget. Eventually, Walt decides to move forward with a treatment written by Ted Sears, Homer Brightman, and Harry Reeves in 1947. This version is the first time the cat-mouse scenes come up. And similar to early treatments, the prince plays a bit of a larger role as he appears for the first time much earlier in the film. Because Walt had pulled back from the animation department, Three of his top animators mostly oversaw the film. Clyde Geronimi, Wilfred Jackson, and Hamilton Lusk took the lead along with nine of the company's top animators. This group soon became the Nidal Men that you may have heard about before if you've consumed any amount of Disney history. If you're hearing this term for the first time, basically the nine old men were the Walt Disney Studios' most celebrated artists who worked on the studio's first films. This group included Les Clark, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnston, Milt Call, Ward Kimball, Eric Larson, John Lausenberry, Wolfgang Reitherman, and Frank Thomas. And really, it's their work on Cinderella that led them to become the leaders in the company that people know today. Michael Barrier talks about the impact the Nine Old Men had on the Disney animation in his book, Hollywood Cartoons, American Animation in Its Golden Age. The, in the book, he pulls a quote from Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, who said financial difficulties meant a small workforce and, quote, with a smaller staff, team effort was stressed to an even greater degree, and Walt began to rely more and more on animation to carry the films." End quote. After Bambi, as we've said before, the company did not focus on technically masterful, artistically ambitious animation in their films. But Walt knew he needed to get back to making those kinds of films in order to make his money back and get that top spot again. So the success of The Nine-Old Men is crucial at this point in history. Each old man was in charge of a major part of the picture. Eric Larson and Mark Davis were good draftsmen and animated Cinderella. According to the documentary From Rags to Riches, The Making of Cinderella, Larson and Davis had different visions for Cinderella's character. Davis gave her a more sophisticated quality, while Larson went for a more simple character, which they had to work to compromise on. More modern animators say it gives the character warmth while also giving her a certain intelligence and sharpness. Mark Davis also animated Cinderella's dress transformation sequence, but apparently has gone on to say that that isn't his best piece of work. Milk Call animated the prince, the duke, the king, and the fairy godmother. Frank Thomas was in charge of the stepmother, which was a new challenge for him. Prior, he did all the charming characters like the dwarves and Pinocchio. Ollie Johnston animated the stepsisters. Wolfgang Reitherman was good at animating suspenseful scenes and was the mastermind behind the whole mice getting the key up to Cinderella scene. And Ward Kimball animated Lucifer. Apparently, he based Lucifer off of his own cat. Now, while the Walt Disney Studio had their best animators on the Cinderella project with the intention of making a film on par with the studio's earlier work, they still had budget issues. To save money on animation, the company actually staged the whole movie as a live-action movie. The animators would then trace the live-action references frame by frame. Many animators did not like this because they felt it was too restrictive. The only animator who didn't have to do this was Ward Kimball because the company did not do the live-action references for the animal sequences. So because of this, 
Animators have gone on to say Cinderella really shows two different styles of animation, the hyper-realistic or Disney formalist style with the people scenes, and the more American cartoon caricature style with the animal sequences. Barrier also notes this tension between the two types of animation influence in the film, but relates it more to what we see in The Three Caballeros, saying both exhibit an, quote, uncomfortable combination of live action and animation, end quote. Switching gears a bit, I want to focus on the music of Cinderella for a second. Last episode, I talked a bit about the Walt Disney Company's shift to commercially successful non-studio songwriters to compose the music for its films. When it came to Cinderella, Walt needed the film to succeed and wanted to make sure that there was absolutely no reason the public would not like this film. He had already scrapped an entire score in 1946 because he called it, quote, dreadful. So he decided hiring commercial songwriters that people already knew was his, basically his best bet. So Walt hired Al Hoffman, Mark David, and Jerry Livingston from Tin Pan Alley. For those who don't know, Tin Pan Alley was the name of a group of songwriters and music publishers in New York City that dominated the popular music scene in the 1940s. Hoffman, David, and Livingston wrote a hit song back in the day. They are the musicians behind the song, A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. Now remember, Walt also likes to innovate and experiment with new inventions in his big films. By the mid-1940s, overdubbing was just becoming mainstream, and Walt decided to use it in the song Sing Sweet Nightingale. Basically, it's the effect you hear when Cinderella harmonizes with herself while she's cleaning the floor. And funnily enough, the decision to hire artists from Tin Pan Alley is how Walt found the woman who voiced Cinderella. David and Livingston knew Eileen Woods from New York City and asked her to voice the demos for their Cinderella songs that they would then send to Walt. While Walt was listening to the demos, something clicked, and he knew that Eileen would voice his leading lady. Speaking of the voice actors in Cinderella, the movie has a lot of Disney veterans in it. So there's no Sterling Holloway, sadly, but there are others that we've heard before. Verna Felton, who played the main mean elephant in Dumbo, voices the fairy godmother. Betty Lou Gerson, who will go on to voice Corella DeVille, is the narrator at the beginning of the film. And Eleanor Audley, who would later voice Maleficent, voices the stepmother. I know we've talked a lot about the different versions of the Cinderella script that were changed and cut in earlier years, but I wanted to highlight a few changes made to this specific treatment of the film. Now, this isn't a comprehensive list of all of them. I'm just focusing on decisions that pertain to our discussion of the film later. But if you check out the sources in our show notes, you can read up on every single change and alteration, if you wish. There was a sequence ultimately taken out of the film where Cinderella eavesdrops on her stepmother and stepsisters gossiping about the woman at the ball that danced with the prince. In this scene, Cinderella is amused that they are unaware the mystery woman is her. Walt decided to take this out because he thought it made Cinderella look spiteful, and he did not want to risk the audience losing their connection with her and not sympathizing. In this version, the prince also had a bigger role. There was going to be a scene where the duke reunites the prince and Cinderella after discovering she is the woman from the ball. The prince would have been surprised that Cinderella was a servant girl, but ultimately not disappointed. At that point, the fairy godmother would have made another appearance to transform Cinderella's clothes again, and then we go into the wedding scene. Walt scrapped this scene because it, quote, denied viewers emotional payoff of having the prince discover her identity himself. Before I move on to the reception of the film, I want to bring up again that Walt was not really involved in the making of Cinderella. As I mentioned before, ill feelings from the 1941 animator strike caused him to not trust his animation team as much, so he began to shift his energies to other parts of the company. 
Notably, during Cinderella's production period, he was in England working on his new live-action film, Treasure Island. The three directors communicated with Walt via mail, sending him scripts, sound recordings, storyboards, and drawings during the summer of 1949, but he was really, really bad at responding, and sometimes wouldn't respond at all. Because the directors wanted to keep production rolling, they made a lot of the decisions without his approval, which would work until Walt finally got around to sending feedback. If he didn't like something, the production group would have to double back and redo all their work. Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan were further along by the time production on Cinderella started, so a competition began at the studio to see who could get further along on the film that they were working on. Somehow, Cinderella surpassed Alice in Wonderland by 1948, and Walt ultimately decided to release Cinderella first because he felt Alice and Peter were, quote, too cold. Production on Cinderella wrapped in two years and ultimately cost about $2.2 million to make. The Walt Disney Company was in a similar situation as they were when Snow White wrapped. Even with the money made on the package films, if the movie failed, the studio was going to fail. Luckily, it ended up being a huge hit. It made $7.8 million and would go on to earn $315 million with re-releases. With the money, the company was finally able to finish production on Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, which would be the next two films to hit theaters. The Walt Disney Company also used the financial boost to expand to live television, make more live-action movies, and start plans to build a theme park, which would ultimately become Disneyland. And... Walt's decision to hire Tin Pan Alley to write the film's music was successful. The Cinderella album was number one on the Billboard charts and was number one for a whole year. Notably, Disney created its own music publishing company, so it was the first time the company licensed its own soundtrack. Because of this, Walt got even more money from the movie and was able to create his own distribution company. Disney also released Treasure Island in 1950, and it ended up making $4.6 million. So just like that, Walt and his company are saved from financial ruin and quickly catapult back to one of the top animation studios in the country. So we're back. We're back. Yay. Yay. Still not talking about new movies. Still talking about, still trying to make up our gap. Yeah. But honestly, like, I'm not complaining with this one, if I'm being completely honest. No. This is going to be a better episode, honestly. (laughs) Listeners, you dodged a bullet. (laughs) No, hey. Hey, I had some good stuff last episode. I mean, yeah, but I mean, over whatever. Anyways. Is there anywhere specifically you want to start today? Or do you want me to think of a topic to start? Not particularly. I've got notes just kind of across the whole thing because I take notes in chronological order, obviously. Um, I think it's very I do think it's very funny that the opening song ends by calling this the sweetest story ever told and then it goes into immediately oh yeah her dad died under uh, an untimely death and then her stepmom was abusive i'm like yeah sweet stories right very very sweet stories well and i think just watching this as an adult like and i got this sense the last time i watched it and again this time but like this is a very dark story and if we didn't have all those little animal sequences, I think that would have been emphasized even more watching it. Because I think kind of in like the classic Disney way that we've talked about so far, like there are B plots or like side plots that oftentimes are for more comedic effect and mm-hmm. can oftentimes undercut the tone. Um and I think one really prime example of this and kind of going along with like the stepmother as you were just saying was when 
the stepmother was telling Cinderella all the chores she had, all the chores she had to do. And she basically like is very stern with her, kind of has this demonic look in her eye and the music is like bubbling underneath until it goes to a boil. It's like the, like you can feel the pressure building, but that is offset by the fact that Lucifer is over there just being a little smug little cat like yeah you gotta go do the chores and like he's nodding along with like the little like watch them you know and like that's supposed to be comedic so you almost kind of forget like oh this woman's terrifying Mm -hmm. right so a hot take compared to the last change of change of opinion for me compared to the last few episodes Mm. um I think the animal stuff works in this. Oh, it does. Yeah, I, I think, think, and I, I don't think it actually undercuts the tone. Oh, really? Too much at all? Really? Yeah. Um, because like one, when when you tend to when you're dealing with like heavy shit in real life, there's always someone off to the side being a fuckwit. <laughs> like if you've got a pet and you're dealing with some like emotionally heavy stuff, they're just off to the side, just being like, "Hey, hi." I'm right here. I'm going to lick my own butt. <laughs> so like Lucifer just kind of do it, like doing the whole nod along and stuff like it, it works for me. And I don't think it super undercuts it because like they cut back and forth between Lucifer and Lady Tremaine. But at no point is Lucifer ever like the focal focal point. It's just kind of there as flavor. And also I think it's interesting to show that, Lady Tremaine's spiteful nature has kind of rubbed off on this animal as well. Mm. Like it's, it's more of an underline to all of her treatment, uh, except for the part right at the end where she's like, Oh yeah. And bathe Lucifer. And he's like, Oh, so, yeah. no, I, I think that's a good point. And I guess my take, the reason why I feel like it's more of an undercut is like, for the first time like watching this the last time when we tried to record this episode the last time that's the first time i really understood like the gravity of everything going on in the film and then you know that could just be like we were talking like you know disney likes to make films for everyone right they're not supposed to be just strictly Mm -hmm. for children right there needs to be things there that people of all ages can dig into and pick up on so I guess that could also be part of it. But at the same time, yeah. it also was kind of like, I mean, it'd be nice if it was just like darker in general. Absolutely. But that's just also my preference, you know, like that's, and I take that into account. Like that's also right. just like me wanting it to be something, right? Right. And I'm with you on that. I'm not saying it's perfect because like the 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 oscillation between the actual a plot of like all the all the people and the cinderella stuff and the the relationship drama going on there over to the mouse shenanigans of trying to get all the beads to go with the dress it is a bit whiplash i think it it works for me because they're not they don't feel like total asides yeah they don't feel like they were shoved in there like I, f- I, I felt that some of the slapsticky stuff in the previous ones were. Um, these di- like the B plots here with the animals directly affect the A plot and yeah. the A plot directly affects the B plot. They're mm-hmm. interwoven a little bit better, which makes the transitions from serious to comical a little smoother for me. It's still pretty jarring, but it works way better than it has in the past. Right. 
which like like we're obviously seeing signs of improvement across the board from Disney here. It's very nice to go for to get back to like really nice at like bespoke feature length animation after spending as long as we did in the package films, especially since we had to rewatch all the package films. Yes, exactly. So it it's is a really breath of ni- fresh air. Yeah, it's a breath of fresh air. And it's a real, it really emphasizes to me how much effort was put into Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, if we spent this much time in the package films, imagine how the animators must've felt just having to churn out what they like all of that for the entirety of the war. Mm hmm. So to get to this point and being able to uh, start flexing a little bit more is is really nice to see. Yeah. Um, and their narrative design is also like reflected in that. Im- it also reflects that improvement because we're starting to see them knit parts together. Um, well, and additionally, like I think the pacing, the overall, like because we complain a lot that these films have felt long, you know, like it's just like with snow you know especially the earlier stuff you sit there and you're like okay when's this gonna be over almost but with this one like it moves pretty well like you can see notable improvements in how they construct a story and how the story is able to move forward Mm -hmm. which i appreciated because i wasn't just bored while watching it and forcing myself to watch it right no it's uh it's it's really nice to not be bored of one of these it's very nice for to not be bored for the full hour and it and a hour and a bit and it be a single contiguous story because again like we talked about in the last three episodes at this point and there are highs and lows but like we were fading in and out of a lot of that and it's nice to just kind of be in it there is a like the point at the end where um jock jack and uh gus are stealing the key amidst the the slipper nonsense honestly much more interested in the mice stealing the key than watching Anastasia and Drizella try on a shoe for 10 minutes. So I think that's the first time we've, I think that's the first time we can officially say the B plot with the animals is a better than the A plot with the people. Right. Well, and I guess it's like, cause you have to kind of think about when you put the two plots side by side, Mm-hmm. which one is there to move like that's strictly to move the story along whereas which one is there for the comedic effect right and oftentimes in disney when you put those two side by side the comedic the comedic effect one is the one that falls flat right or the one right. that feels like the one that we often have gripes about is what i'm trying to say and even though like typically in disney it's the animal plots that are for comedic and typically like in this film up until that point you know like it's it's suspense, yes, but there's also comedy in it as well. This is the first mm-hmm. time where we really see the humans there for the comedic effect, not the animals, yeah. right? Hi, I'm Manish Mathur. I am, you know, I'm a writer and podcaster. I host a podcast on uh, romantic comedies called It Pod to Be You and one on queer cinema called Queer Now. And, um, yeah, I like to write about films. Specifically, I like writing about older movies. And, like, that's that's sort of my main thing. I like classic movies, foreign movies. Um, and my day job is an attorney. Manish had one of the most positive takes on Cinderella, which we'll get to in a moment. But when it came to the animal subplot, he was less enthused. The thing that the original Cinderella is that, like, 
there's a lot of like animal nonsense in it. Like I just like I don't really care about Lucifer the cat. But I remember like last time I watched I should watch the movie again because maybe my memory is not serving me well, but I just remember like there's a lot of that cat like chasing the animals around, like the mice or whatever. And I'm like, I don't really care for that. In terms of good Disney movies, I'd say it ranks pretty low in general. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful movie. It's got beautiful music and beautiful animation. Who does not love that scene where the fairy godmother gives her her beautiful dress? Like that is amazing and it's iconic. It's the one that they use in a lot of Disney promotions, and that's for a reason. Lindsay B. also expressed her dislike for the animal subplot in Cinderella, saying those scenes seemed like a way to make the film feature length, and that the story developers could have used the time more effectively. I will say, as a child, I very much liked the mice. As an adult, I think that their side story is a bit superfluous and maybe a tad annoying. (laughs) Um, All those, it, it feels as an adult watching it like filler or a way to pad the runtime to make it feature length. Um, I really could care less about the mice and um, Lucifer, the cat, um, which is still a great name for a cat, by the way. But (laughs) Um, the, the fact that one of these stories in the second one focuses solely on the mice and all I can do is sit there and think, God, I really don't care. Please get to like a story that I actually care about. Um, really ruined that movie for me. So would you say then that in the first Cinderella, what if they didn't have the mice? What do you think they'd do with that extra time? Time travel. <laughs> See, that's We're the third going, one. <laughs> going to combine the first and the third movies. <laughs> it's genius. Um, so in reference and and not focusing on this specifically but i think we've seen how um they can turn that movie into a feature-length film when they did the live action because there's more to focus on i think in that story than having the mice pad the runtime and that's comic relief for the most part um i think that focusing on cinderella's uh, relationship with her mother and her father like that is very much glossed over it's like the storybook opening basically um, focusing on her life with her stepsisters instead of kind of glossing past it. Um, or even, uh, I, and this sounds stupid, but I kind of like what they did with the, the new one where she briefly met the prince. It was kind of a cop out of like, oh, look, they knew each other before that night. They've known each other more than 12 hours. Um, but even so, like stuff like that that could add more nuance that necessary not not was not necessarily available to them or even thought of back then um, would have made it better and you know just eliminate the side story with the mice completely. <laughs> They're cute and I they, they can stay in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the stepsisters fucking suck. <laughs> like. Not just as people, which they suck as people real bad. Like, good lord, this family is terrible to her. But also, they are just the most bumbling, awkward, useless women. They can't do anything right. No. And, like, as a woman, 
a part of me is like, wow, yeah, like you guys kind of suck. But at the same time, they kind of do some things that are refreshingly relatable. Oh, yeah. I want to say like, let's like some points of comparison, right? Like we have Cinderella set up as foils to the stepsisters, right? Like Cinderella is the ideal woman, whereas the stepsisters are the non-ideal woman or women, I should say. So we can look at how a they wake up in the morning, right? Cinderella, she like kind of like groans and rumbles around, but she wakes up in her hair. She looks gorgeous. She's like laughing. Life is great. The stepsisters like drag their asses out of bed. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yes. Yeah, absolutely. Accurate. Also, Anastasia has this line um, when they get the invitation to the ball and the stepmother's like, every eligible maiden is to attend. And Anastasia just goes, and I'm so eligible. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like that's so Like, you, I know people who say that, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. me. So, like, and yes. And I like, guess, I oh. guess that's. I guess the, uh, then I guess like the camera like the camera's perspective on them worked on me I guess mm-hmm. because my default reaction is they suck I I don't like them which is like the point that the the camera is trying to get across right and I think my distaste with them is the fact that they are used often as comic relief because mm-hmm. like now that we're sitting here talking about it, I'm like oh they're not that bad no they're just they're like, just coded as non-effeminate women right they don't know how to be a proper woman and so that's why we're not supposed to like them and it's interesting that you also bring up the camera's perspective because while last time we watched it i focused more so on this abuse narrative which we'll get to later but this time i really focused more on like mise-en-scene like art like Mm -hmm. you know more artistry kind of stuff and the perspective changes in this film so many times it's primarily cinderella um and I think that is why we're like it's so easy to sympathize with her and see the stepsisters as super bumbling, see the stepmother as super cruel, mm-hmm. like see these extreme characters, right? Because it's so strictly through her perspective. Right. But one thing I noticed this time around was um, when Jacques and Gus go to get the beads and the sash, when they're hopping down and stuff. The stepsisters and the way that they're presented in the film kind of changes, right? Because like usually they're just kind of bumbling and all over the place. But in that scene, they're super menacing. And I remember watching it as a kid and being like, why are we just looking at their feet? Why are we just seeing their sad shadows? Like, we've already seen them on camera before, right? We've seen mm-hmm. what they look like. So why are we looking at them like this? And it's because in that scene, because Cinderella isn't there, we're now taking the perspective of the mice, so mm-hmm. that is why we only see the stepsisters and the stepmom as voices, shadows, and feet. Because that right. is how they see the stepsisters, right? And then again, this perspective switches at the ball. So again, when I was a kid watching it, I always felt that when the Cinderella and Prince met at the ball, it was so impersonal and kind of like cold and distant. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of thinking, like, we've been around Cinderella so much, this whole movie, but now, like, I feel very, like, distant from her, and I don't like that. And it's because that whole sequence, up until they start dancing, is from the king's perspective. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, that is why all the women in the ballroom kind of just kind of mesh Blend together. together. Yeah. There's no, like, they all look the same, right? They're all, like, fair skin, brown hair, same kind of dress, different color. Right. Um, And that's why when Cinderella and the Prince meet for the first time, like, you're kind of like, 
ooh, like, I, why am I not part of this? It's because it's from his perspective. And ultimately, I wonder, like, does that actually work in the film's favor? I don't, I'm not sure if it works in the film's favor, but I think it's real cool how fluidly we're shifting between perspectives. Mm-hmm. Like, there are, like, the the rapidity of which we're, fl- we're flicking between perspectives at point, like, at the tail end where we're bouncing between Lucifer, the mice, and Lady Tremaine just kind of boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom. It almost, like, it almost feels like a Virginia Woolf novel at points mm. where it's just seamlessly flowing from one perspective to the other without really giving you time to adjust to it, and you're just boom in a different person's point of view. So I think it, it's it's cool and it's interesting, um, and I think it does a lot to show the different way, like the ways all of these people are interacting within the same house. Because the points, like the the point, like one of the points that uh, sticks out to me the most is I keep coming back to this as like representative of how the like the stepsisters are comic relief. But also thinking about the perspective thing when they're doing the the music lessons, and uh, Anastasia gets her finger stuck in the flute and just kind of bop, 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 hits uh, Drizella in the chin a whole bunch. It's presented as like it's it's presented as comic relief, but it's not presented as like because we're we're in Lady Tremaine's perspective for a moment there, mm-hmm. and it's just like. It is not necessarily like you dumbasses, which is how Cinderella would probably see it. It's just girls, we need to stay focused, stop messing around. Mm-hmm. And it's more humanizing in a way because they're not like it's I, I can almost see myself having that moment of just like my finger is stuck in a thing and I'm just like being a goofball trying to get it out. And I understand she's not like trying to be goofy, but that like kind that's kind of how it comes across. Right. So it's. It's an interesting experiment in how to humanize and show the connections of everybody here in in this house, um, which is only which is also made possible by the fact that the house is completely gone to shit. Yes, <laughs> because like there are mouse holes everywhere, which give the mice uh, lines of like basically. Uh, highways throughout the house where they could just be one place to another which is another way to reinforce like lady tremaine not being a good steward of the house which as i talked about in the pinocchio episode they're using class signifiers to indicate morality Mm -hmm. um because at the beginning of the movie um lady tremaine is described like once once the, the the dad dies she's uh, said that she is uh, blowing all the money to quote uh, because she is grimly determined to forward the interests of her two awkward daughters over maintaining the chateau. So like they might present uh, to other people as having all this wealth and of have and like being of this class, but they're not doing what is expected of people at that stature. Mm-hmm. So I know I can't, that's, that's very far from my original point, but right, right. But no, I I think it is a good point. Like, yeah, I, yeah, it's just, it's really cool. 
I think it's cool that I do wish at the end of the day, like, I think it is seamless, like you point out, because again, it took me how many viewings to finally realize, like, this is what the film is doing. Um, mm-hmm. But I do kind of wish, like, at the end of the day, we actually see the prince and Cinderella interact, because I think that that would have made it a lot better when they got married after, like, knowing each other for, like, what, three hours? <laughs> your Your movie is an hour 15 less because like like the last two minutes is just like them getting married literally just add a discussion mm-hmm. just have them talk for a little bit yep that's all we need that's all we need. and like that's, that's the thing like, it was gonna be in like there's so many ver- like as we mentioned there's so many versions where the prince was actually gonna have like dare i say yeah. not more scenes but perhaps a personality yeah shocker you know, you know what here's a thought give me a jane austen era regency regency dance conversation they're dancing yes. for so long they yes. can talk they can talk during the dancing that's what the dancing's for it's yeah. for private conversation let them talk let them talk and dance Ugh, it just frustrates me because this prince is so boring <laughs> Ugh, like yeah, literally what he's... how like we get one indication of a personality of him from him and that is when he is meeting all the ladies and he yawns and gives a sassy glance up to his father to show how yeah. bored he is that is and really that doesn't show that good of a per like that doesn't show that good of a personality no. like yeah like we get it you're bored but at least pretend <laughs> Also, but that that being that being said, like he's being he's fr- very very clearly being an asshole. Mm-hmm. Like let this let this man like just have a conversation and just if he's gonna do the Darcy, do the Darcy. Just be full Dar- be full Darcy and stop <laughs> and don't stop at him being bored with parties. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Austin's been on my mind recently. No, that's okay. Austin's been on my mind too a lot recently. Do not blame you. Austin's great. <laughs> good romance but yeah no totally agree wish this prince wasn't this prince like it just makes me mad makes me mad so the gripes that harrison and i have with the prince and the romance plot in the film are fairly common modern day critiques of cinderella and it's an opinion a lot of guests had as well here's morgan with her take on it as much as, like, I see, like, some of the issues with it, I think that it is, like, a really beautifully made, made film. It was one of, like, I think it was, like, Walt Disney's, like, favorite piece of animation. Like, her transformation into the dress, um, and which is beautiful. And I, the concept art from it by Mary Blair is fantastic. Um, and, like, I do, like, I like the character of Cinderella. Like, I think that she is, like, really sweet and nice. And I don't think it's very realistic. <laughs> but I think that the story is good and it stays true to, like, the fairy tale. Uh, makes yeah, sense. Yeah, besides that, it is kind of, like, a... It's one of those, like, movies that I put on when, like, I'm not, like, afraid to, like, take a nap. <laughs> like, if I, like, am going to, like, fall asleep. Yeah. But it's not really, like, uh... I'm, my attention is not going to be on it the whole time. It's a little boring. Mm-hmm. It's... It has, like, some moments, but, like, overall, that film is just boring. Even, like, the live-action adaptions, just kind of, like, okay, like, we get it. We get what's happening. This is very long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. So, other than it, boring, long, Cinderella's mm-hmm. character, kind of, like, what are the... You mentioned there's some issues with it. Like, you said you understood the issues. So, what would be the oh. other issues? I mean, I, I think that, like, it's just, like, <laughs> the fact that 
Okay, so, like, she, like, gets dressed up and, like, goes to this, like, ball. And then she loses her shoe. And he's like, I gotta find, I gotta find this woman in the shoe. I'm gonna find every, I'm gonna go through everybody. Can't remember what she looks like, but I got this shoe. And I don't know, I always thought that was, like, kind of weird. Like, I remember even, like, asking as a kid, like, he can't remember her. But I guess that's, like, the same thing as, like, Superman, like, when he takes off his glasses. I'm like, you can't see that that's Clark Kent. Uh, Different, different things, different things. The the prince in Cinderella doesn't vibrate at a, at specific frequencies when pictures are being taken of him to right. protect his identity. True, also, true. also, some dudes just like feet and pay more attention to feet. Uh, apparently, the prince is one of them. Honestly, <laughs> let's, like, we wow. shouldn't we shouldn't judge the foot fetish. For Olivia, Cinderella was one of her favorite movies as a child. But she says her feelings towards it have changed after watching the movie as an adult. Do you still love Cinderella? She's not my favorite Disney princess now. But sure, why not? When you were little, it, it held that value from when you were little and you loved yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think when I was little, it was more like I definitely bought into the idea of like, I want to be rescued by a man and the man should come to me Mm -hmm. and I just want to look as pretty as possible no matter what, which is basically all of these, you know, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White and Cinderella was that like these women were not fierce. They were not strong. They're not independent. They, they waited for the strong man to come to them literally yeah all of them and that was it and they just became as pretty as possible and that was about it so that's that's what i wanted too when i was a kid but now i'm just like no screw that yeah so but i think you know again you have to think about the time period of it because like that wasn't the culture back then whereas in the 90s it was more about like women and their independence and being fierce and which is why you have like jasmine and Belle being way more like we are fierce and they're not blonde either Mm -hmm. um because i think you know culture changed and they're like wait a minute we have brunette girls too and we have indian girls people from china and so i think it's it's just a cultural look at history of like what is ever going on and changing and and 10 years from now it might be different Mm -hmm. Um, hopefully for the better but who knows So a big critique modern audiences have with Cinderella, and one Morgan and Olivia spoke on just now while they talked broadly about the story, is that the title character is not particularly strong or memorable. In the common cultural conception, Cinderella is viewed as kind, beautiful, demure, gentle, and sweet, which I want to say are all admirable qualities. But that, plus her role as a domestic servant and eventual heterosexual romance, makes Cinderella stereotypically feminine. Now, I want to emphasize that being stereotypically feminine is not bad, but the film presents it as the ideal form of femininity. Because she's presented as the hero of the story, up against the stepmother, who is cunning, cold, and not maternal, and the stepsisters, who are loud, awkward, and not conventionally beautiful, Cinderella becomes the film's exemplar for the type of woman young girls should be. This becomes more of an issue when the heroic male characters, broadly speaking, 
have the qualities that the villainous female characters have, like being strong, agentic, angry, cunning, non-affectionate, and ambitious, especially outside of the domestic sphere. What all this does is present a very narrow representation of acceptable femininity, and one some, if not most women, do not relate to. This is how Diana views Cinderella. While it is a good movie, it is it is not my least favorite Disney movie. Um, it is still one of those that I enjoy, but not as much as I like the other two. Um, Cinderella, it's just, it's so stereotypical, like girl wants something more, falls in love with a prince and he whisks her away to whatever, you know? It's not it's not something I can relate to super well because like I had really like awesome parents and like they're both alive and together and it's awesome. And like so I guess I can't relate to her as much as I can relate to like other princesses, but like Cinderella you know, in the first one like she sings and she's pretty and that's kind of like the only thing she has like going for her half the time. So Cinderella 3 gives her an actual personality, which is really cool. Cuz a lot of the earlier ones with princesses, they didn't really have personalities. They were very damsel in distress and that was their entire personality. But Manisha argues there's more spunk to Cinderella than a lot of people realize. I think she's like she's like a good shade queen. Like She's like I like she's not ever like outright like rude to anyone, but like you I honestly it's a good thing you're asking this because I used to always think that like maybe I'm just like reading something that's like not on, like I'm projecting onto the character, but like I think that there's like some level of like she's a little bit more like self aware of her situation and how ridiculous her stepsisters are and stepmother is like like I don't think she's like. Like, she's not giving, like, she's not giving any, like, one-liners. But I think there's, like, some, a little bit of sass there. I, I mean, I, my hot take, you know, for Cinderella and all these old movies is that, like, I think there's, like, they have a lot more spine than they get credit for. Um, than they get credit for. And I think that, like, you know, maybe it's just, like, again, like, the 2015 Cinderella. Like, maybe you just need, like, that, like, a, just, like, another, like, kind of retelling of it with more, like, modern sensibilities to really catch it. Because I think sometimes, like, when something's old, we just kind of look at it as an old, and we're like, well, that was just, like, that's back then. You know, things were different, whatever. But I think that, like, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that Cinderella has more of a spine than than I think people think she does, honestly. Like, Keira Knightley, one of my favorite actors, gave an interview where she was, like, I don't let my daughter watch Cinderella because I don't want her growing up thinking she has to do housework and then she'll get rescued by a prince. And I'm like, Kira, I love you, but like, what century are you living in? <laughs> like, what decade are you living in? Like, no one, th- like, no one watches Cinderella thinking that. And like, that's, I don't know, it's such a like, to, like, that interview was so jarring. I believe it was on like Alan or Jimmy Fallon, like, like one of those talk shows. And I was just like, wow, like, someone who I find very intelligent is looking at something so superficially. And, like, you know, I mean, I think Cinderella, like, I think that, like, Cinderella as a character is demure and subservient for a while and kind of lets people walk all over her. Like, that's part of her character. That's part of her arc. And the joy of that arc is that she breaks out of that. And she doesn't do it by you know, murdering her stepfamily, she does it by 
killing them with kindness and being a good person and real and accepting and like you know taking her reward when it comes to her like once she's like hey the prince likes me then she hightails it out of there and does not even give anything back to her step family she's like bye so i'm like that to me is like she escapes and is you know thinking of herself for once so i don't know like i i still feel like as much as we are like coming to terms with you know, the fact that these princesses can be a little complicated and the writing for these characters have gotten much better over the years, that's for sure. You know, from the 1930s until now, of course, I think, you know, there's a world of difference between, you know, Moana and Snow White for the better. Um, But I also feel like maybe some people just are just so used to criticizing these movies for these sort of imagined slights against, you know, equality that I feel like it's just... It's going to continue until end of time. You know, anytime something is marketed towards, you know, women or towards girls um, or is anything remotely feminine, I think people just hold it to a higher standard of, you know, is this like, quote unquote, good for women? Is this bad for women? And I feel I honestly like I'm not a woman, so I can't say this for sure. But like, um, I feel like that's like really condescending. I mean, I feel like we as humans should be smart enough to know that like not everything is needs to be like something not not everything has to be aspirational and like i feel that very strongly with romance i'm like kind of like hey maybe like it's okay if a movie shows a toxic relationship because you know what a lot of relationships are toxic in real life um and like i mean like intentionally toxic i don't mean like something that like tries to be you know like a tries to be in like an aspirational romance but fails. I mean, like, you know, a movie like, you know, I mean, I can't even think of an example, but like, there's, I think there are certain movies that show toxic relationships, and I think that's like kind of okay. Um, just like how I think like it's kind of okay for like princess movies to have some messed up ideas because like, you know, we can like learn and talk about them and explore them and unpack them. You know, we don't just need to put it, these movies into a box of like, okay, like this movie is good for my daughter, but this one isn't. So I'm only going to show her this one. And I won't show her that one. And I, I, I realized this even more this time. Cinderella, like, I feel like so many people look at Cinderella and they say, think she's like a boring princess. She's not. But she's not. She's not. She's, she's got so, so much spunk. She's, she's so good. She's so good. Like, okay. Okay. Like, I know the narration says that she is very kind and gentle and everything, but she has moments <laughs> of anger. She has moments of sass. She can show that she can will not be pushed around. Like, mm-hmm. the way that she interacts with Lucifer and like you know the Yo, chickens okay. and things like she is not having it okay that whole scene where she she's talking and this will be a good segue for you to talk about the writ large mm-hmm. relationship she is abs if we're if we're considering her relationship with uh lady tremaine and the stepsisters to be abusive which one the movie straight up says it is at the beginning she's like like lady tremaine is like yeah they're they're emotionally abusive to her uh, and they're being rude. So if we take that as as truth, 
and re- like we're watching her talk to Bruno about like not being shitty to Lucifer. She's like, if you don't want to lose that nice warm bed, you'd get her. You better get rid of those dreams. And I'm just like, oh fuck, okay, we're doing this. You're just projecting. Yeah. She's like, you need to learn to like cats. And, like, Lucifer is basically the animal stand-in for Lady Tremaine. And Bruno's the animal stand-in for Cinderella. In this instance, yeah. And she's, like, he has his high points, like, well, there must be some good in him. And you know, if Cinderella can't say something nice about you, then you are the devil incarnate. Well, I mean, it's it's his name. So, but, like, yeah, she's absolutely projecting. And Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's the only way she can, like... articulate her feelings because she can't like bring her grievances to to lady tremaine and the stepsisters bring her she doesn't have anyone to bring her grievances to like the mice maybe but like she doesn't really confide in them no because they're mice well and that's a whole other thing i want to get to later on. that's a whole weird relationship that i want to get into after we finish Mm -hmm. this discussion yeah but yeah so like she's she's stuck with the she's stuck having to process these feelings so she projects on the bruno Mm mm-hmm and it's it's like oh wow movie you're like this is this well, is wild. Before we go too far into this, I want to kind of set up this reading. Yeah, double back. Essentially, what I picked up on the last time and what Harrison and I are talking about right now is this reading of Cinderella that she is a victim of emotional trauma and abuse, and that is prevalent not only in you know her interactions with the stepmothers and stepsisters, but possibly could explain kind of the poor life decisions she makes later on in the film i.e marrying and falling in love with a man that she only knew for three hours but we'll get to that so um as harrison pointed out at the very beginning of the movie the narrator says that after the dad died cinderella was quote abused humiliated and forced to become a servant in her own home so as harrison said like they straight up just say like the stepmom abused Cinderella, but it doesn't really go into much detail beyond that. But like, there's all these little evident signs that when Cinderella was young, her father was dead, that things weren't great. And Cinderella had to learn to survive in this abusive environment. So at the very beginning, the first really bit of personality that we get from Cinderella or like that we learn about Cinderella is that she has dreams. I would like to note that she doesn't necessarily dream of marrying a prince, but she dreams of very vague happiness, which indicates that even though she projects is very happy or very like at okay with her situation, she is not. We get a glimpse of some buildup resentment and anger in the opening scene when the clock interrupts her song, A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. Uh, She then like gets up from bed, throws her pillow around and yells, "Uh, I hear you. Come on, get up, you say. Time to start another day. I wouldn't go so far as to call this anger, but for me watching the film, expecting a kind Cinderella, the sudden outburst came as a bit of a shock. And I think that this sort of like relationship dynamic between the stepmother and Cinderella that I've been mentioning really comes out in their first interaction, which is something I picked up on this time. So when Cinderella is giving the porridge and the tea and the breakfast to the stepsisters and the stepmom with Drizella and Anastasia, she just walks in, walks in, Good morning, Drizella. Walks in. Good morning, Anastasia. Doesn't really wait, just hops on in. With the stepmother, she does not enter the room until the stepmother says, come in, child, come in. She walks in and then she says, good morning, stepmother. 
there's a hesitation there, right? She doesn't feel at liberty to sort of enter the stepmother's private bedroom, right? She has to be invited in. So it's subtle, but I feel like that's one thing. When Cinderella has to enter the room later, when the stepmom's about to like give her all these chores, the scene does this really, the animators do this really cool thing where she's up against the doorway after she closes it and the sunlight is coming in through the window and casts this shadow over her and it looks like, and it's just like the lines on the window pane, but it looks like a cell, right? So literally you see how in this scene, like the stepmother is imprisoning Cinderella. Like that, you get an idea of their dynamic just through that one visual indicator alone, right? We also get bits that Cinderella holds a lot of like resentment and anger towards the stepmother and the stepsisters that we never really see when she interacts with them. So when she gets, when she first gets the invitation to the ball, she hesitates before going up and interrupting the music lesson, right? And she almost kind of has to like think for a moment is like, is this worth like going up and interrupting them? And then, you know, she's like, "Hmm, I guess we will go up and interrupt their music lesson. And then we also have the scene where the step, well, you know, Cinderella realizes she's not going to the ball, right? And the stepmother, very passive, you know, very fake, kindly, sweetly is like, oh, Cinderella, are you not going to join us? Very full well, knowing that she screwed over this girl's chance to go over to the ball, right? Mm-hmm. And Cinderella doesn't play into it. You get a little bit of anger from her because she's just like, yes, good night. Bye leaves right very short doesn't even look at her she's very upset but i think all this is very like subtextual like you kind of have to read into it but i think honestly when you watch the scene where the stepsisters tear apart cinderella's clothes when she first decides she's going to the ball when she's wearing the dress that the mice give her that whole scene reads basically looks like an assault the way that it is yes. filmed, the with the way that the action is, like the way that the stepsisters it, tear. And then what you see is the stepmother just looking at it and smiling. Like she's pleased that this is what her daughters are doing to her, right? Sorry, Harrison, you mm-hmm. were going to say something. I mean, one, Lady Tremaine baits them into it. And yes. she's like, don't you think these beads are interesting? And it takes Drizella a moment to catch on to what she's saying. Um, whether or not they're actually her beads is beside the point. She, Lady Tremaine gave them an opening to do it. Mm-hmm. But also, like we talked about the 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 Snow White forest sequence of like the trees and the forest, like essentially assaulting her innocence. It's it's shot the same way. Yes, it's framed the exact same way as that whole stretch of that movie. Yeah. Uh, except this is way more violent, honestly. Yes, way more violent. And what you see is. Cinderella, like, her clothes completely tear. Like, she literally, she looks like an abuse victim when they leave. She, rightfully so, starts crying. And then runs out into the the bench to cry. Which, like, I know people give her a lot of flack for, like, being one of those princesses who cry when nothing goes her way. Like, excuse me, she was just physically assaulted. You get physically assaulted and tell me you're not going to be upset afterwards. Like, That shit's traumatizing. When she's crying, as she's crying, she says, there's nothing left for me here. Nothing. And to me, I was like, oh, she's literally at the edge of the cliff. Like, she 
Mm-hmm. Like something in her snapped, right? Like she is not doing well. But then, you know, the fairy godmother comes, helps her out. But then she just like, what, an hour later meets a random man and decides to fall in love with him, right? So when I see that happening, like kind of seeing this whole movie so far and seeing how this woman is has been amused and clearly is trying to find ways to cope with it. She dreams of happiness. She dreams, obviously, of just leaving her current right. situation. So she meets this man who gives her attention, is kind to her, and then they just dance away. Like, of course she's going to fall in love with him. Like, he is, in her tumultuous life, he is a symbol of safety. He uh-huh. is a symbol of escape. He can offer her, like, any sort of, like, she he's a, he's like a way out. Anything you want to else you want to say about that? I'm, I feel like I put it better the last time, but I can't find the no, words this time. No, you're. Do, I think you're doing way better this time. Honestly, oh, um, thank you. I mean, I, uh, I I did some after after this. I did some quick googling, mm-hmm. and um, because magical thinking is a trauma response mm-hmm. to, uh, to like psychological abuse and shit like this. So her to basically like finish getting attacked by uh Anastasia and Drizella and then run out and suddenly boom fairy godmother here gonna like fix everything uh vi- aesthetically anyways and give you the opportunity to escape like in a- in the text of the film, this is really happening, mm-hmm. but but it has major uh, magical thinking vibes. Interesting. Okay, yeah, that's basically what I was trying to. I just I didn't want to say that and have it not be correct. So I'm glad you Googled because yeah. I didn't know. So anyway, she falls in love with this man, who represents her escape, her who represents her way out, and goes back to her life. Right. If you notice the next day, she's kind of out of it. Um, so the stepmother is like running around and yelling and is like, everyone needs to get ready. Ah, And Cinderella kind of comes in and it takes her a little while to figure out what's going on. Right. Which like is to be understood. She had a pretty crazy di- night. Lots of things happening. And then she hears the woman who's abusing her yelling. Like, obviously, she's going to be a little like, eh. and then there's this moment when the stepmother tells them all that the prince wants to marry the girl who fits the slipper. And Cinderella kind of just falls into this weird trance, right? And then she starts singing and swaying and slowly goes up the stairs. And while, yes, some people could read that and be like, oh, she's in love. Right? Like, she's like, it's just her being in love. She does seem like she's, like, disassociated. Yes. It fe- it's like, it's like that feeling where you, c- like, mentally you feel like you have let go of the steering wheel and your body's just kind of doing its own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, like, kind of what it, the vibe I'm getting from her through that bit. And she's like, like, yeah, it's, there is a tangible way out and she doesn't quite know how to process it. So she just kind of heads upstairs and it's like, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to reset. I'm going to go back to, back to my one safe spot in this whole, whole hell hole. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately that, that, 
that mo- that moment of disassociation that she needs to reset herself is what tips Lady Tremaine off to go and then is like, I'm gonna go lock you in the in the bedroom so you can't get out of here. Which like Cinderella breaking after that and her breaking down is <laughs> harrowing. It's the most horrifying thing. Well, it's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. Like props to Eileen Woods for that voice acting because I felt that in my bones while she is like crying and wailing and begging to be let out. And it's interesting because we get little bits that she has like all this built up in her. Like I think about how, you know, there's kind of scenes where she lets like either her anger or her sadness kind of like, like, you know, scream out a little bit, but then she reins it in. So like there's a scene in the beginning when she's trying to get Lucifer to come out and she starts very calmly and she's like, come on, kitty, like, come on, come on, come on. And Lucifer's like, no. And then she goes, Lucifer, come here, like yells at him. Mm -hmm. And then he comes, right? And like, she's still not having it after the fact because he's just kind of lounging in the doorway and she just like closes the door on him and he kind of like, you know, falls forward a little bit. And she kind of, and then like, as she's talking to him, as they go down the stairs, you can hear the anger slowly leave her voice as she like resets, right? She's always kind of like, she has these little outbursts, but then like in her head, she reins herself back in. Like that's her trying to cope, right? It's like, no, she has, she can't have an outburst, right? Like it's dangerous to have an outburst for her. So you see that, you know, throughout the movie. So then it just makes that her like being locked in the room, like even more, (laughs) like even more sad as a viewer Mm -hmm. and even more difficult to watch um because again like it's it's worse than when she's assaulted by the stepsisters and she's crying about you know not having anything anymore and you know being hopeless like is she's like literally hit rock bottom at this point right yeah and then you know she gets out and she marries the prince which it is, is what it clearly is. a coping mechanism, but who's, you know, I'm, I am not the three directors of the film. That's just my hot take. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of good in that. A lot of, a lot of stuff in that read. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously neither of us are psychology people, no. so we probably missed some of the finer points there, but I think it's a, it's a valid read. One that oh, yeah. the text, like, the one that the text invites, honestly, because again, like it, op- the movie opens with like Lady Tremaine absolutely killing, <laughs> killing Cinderella's dad. Oh, uh, the fact that they said untimely death, and then we death. jump cut to her smiling at his deathbed while she, while Cinderella is mourning him, and it, then she, and then it specifically says like this, op- like basically like this allowed for the abuse to get worse, yada yada yada. So. What a wild movie. Obviously, the darker read that Harrison and I picked up on is not a part of Cinderella's common cultural conception. But as Emily pointed out during her interview, the film's source material is dark as well. I don't love Cinderella. I think it's overdone. Um, I think, at least with the the Disney version, it's very like one-dimensional. So, okay, I, again 
didn't know for the longest time that Cinderella was not like originally a story from Disney. Like nobody ever tells you that. Nobody ever tells the tells you, oh, this is a fairy tale, but like not the original fairy tale that's a little bit more bloody and gory. Um, and I read a more accurate version of the original fairy tale sometime when I was in elementary school, like late elementary school, like maybe fourth or fifth grade. And recognized that it was the same story as Cinderella, but, like, the girls were, like, cutting off their toes to fit in the shoe and stuff, and they were, like, that desperate for this male attention, and I was, like... What? (laughs) Why? Um, Like, why would... Why is this the story that they wanted to show people? And why did they show it in the way that they did? And I never could wrap my head around how it really taught me anything you know I I was telling you like I feel like the fox and the hound like has lessons that it can teach people and I never did get that from a lot of the princess stories like Cinderella especially maybe Snow White Sleeping Beauty like those classic princesses that people think when they think of Disney I just like didn't get those same I didn't get that same emotional roller coaster whenever I watched them and that's something that you look for in these films yeah I want to feel something It's a good movie. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. And it's also very pretty. I was just about to say, I did not realize how much I adored the art style of this film until this watch through. The colors are phenomenal. I love everything they're doing with the color. I love the animation style. It's just, it's so, it fits this whole having a dream escape you know like kind of like vibe of the film and Mm -hmm. it's just so pretty it's so pretty one cool thing i noticed is because i noticed pretty like pretty much off the bat that they're like blue tones are kind of like the theme of the movie right especially in the beginning um like everything just kind of has that blue tint to it um and cinderella wears blue a lot right but I wasn't really sure if like that like what that meant. I just figured it was like for theming purposes. But then I noticed um, in the music room, you know, the one thing that Cinderella isn't allowed to interrupt. The room is accented with green and pink to match the colors of Drizella and Anastasia's dresses. Like the drapes in the room are basically like Anastasia's costume, but in drapes. Like the same color of her little hairpiece and her dress, and the walls are the same color as Drizella's dress. And you're like, oh, like Cinderella's not allowed to like do this. <laughs> the king's insane. The, the king stuff is always fun. Um, I'm, I'm, depictions of royalty in Disney movies is all, are always weird because like monarchs are never exactly portrayed well, which like it's, Amer- it's an American film. It's an American production. So like, the like Americans might be obsessed with English royalty, but we try to pretend that we don't idolize them as much as other, other cultures and countries are depicted as hence why you get depictions of like ineffectual uh, royalty like this. Um, I'm trying to see if I have anything on my notes in my notes about, that section 
Um, the Duke sidekick towards the end that's falling around is just it, it, big Tweedledee and Tweedledum energy, which we'll talk about next week. He just feels like an Alice in Wonderland character. He feels very like funny. that, and also like Mr. Smee from Peter Pan. Yeah. All kind of roped into one. Yeah, it's a, it's a similar character model to Smee. Yeah. Um... Also, the yeah, king's I, goofy laugh as he was falling yeah, off the chandelier. That is really, re- it, stick, it sticks out so, bu- so, so much. Well, it's weird because, like, typically when Disney does Easter eggs like that, it's for their not formalist movies, right? It's for, like, not their, like, super serious art pieces, yeah. I want to say. It's, like, for their more package film, like, mm-hmm. pieces. So it was kind of jarring to have that in there the king mm, i know he's supposed to be for comedic effect but he kept throwing things everywhere and clearly is a very violent person i mean he's a king yes Kings, the monarchy is inherently violent but i it doesn't mean i have to like it <laughs> that's no, that's fair you shouldn't like it I, I see that and it's like no wonder the prince just kind of like kept drifting away from him like if that was my father like i wouldn't want to go home either <laughs> mm-hmm. also i just want to say like he is so not a romantic in this movie he's very much just wanting grandkids and will set the prince up with the first woman who he can which i would like to point out is not what the king is like in Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time. Stop. The stop. king is such a no. romantic, it's disgusting. <laughs> uh. Uh. But talking a bit about class stuff. Um, yeah. I know last time we talked, we kind of like mentioned that class is oddly absent from the film. It is and it isn't. Yes. Because you still have this whole master-servant dynamic mm-hmm. in the film, which we see with the stepmother and Cinderella, and even to an extent, Cinderella and her animal friends. So in that opening sequence, like, the mice and the birds help Cinderella, like, get ready for the day. You know, they set up her clothes, they help her bathe, you know, they, like, polish her shoes, they do all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So they're kind of, they are her domestic servants at the end of the day. And it's kind of weird. Like you see the process of how she like domesticates wild animals with Gus. <laughs> Cause like Gus at first, he's in the mousetrap, right? And he like, he's naked, <laughs> which that shot of that shot of him in the mousetrap is kind of horrifying. It is. Well, no, it is. You're like, like, you know, he's in this cage and he's like freaking out and everything. And I think it's kind of comical how, like, he goes from, like, wanting to fight Jacques to just being like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll come, I'll come join you guys and be with Cinderella. Like, that sounds fun. (laughs) That sounds fun. And it's kind of like, as soon as Cinderella puts the clothes on them, they, like, become part of her little, like, domestic servant friend group kind of thing. And it's weird. It's weird. And I know that the film... Is, I don't want to say I know that the film is doing this, but I feel like the film is doing this to set up Cinderella and the stepmother as foils. Mm-hmm. Both have servants in their care. And obviously, like if we see a bad master-servant dynamic, then we have to show that there's a good master-servant dynamic to show that having servants isn't a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, there's like... 
it's like this is the way not to do it stepmother but this is the way you should do it cinderella is but it's yeah it's like the idea that like certain people it uh, your how you handle it's that notion that people purport of like how you treat your like a true test of your character is how you treat people below you i don't like that i don't like that thought process but it's like if we're tying class into morals like we've done before the idea that like Cinderella is a better steward than uh, Lady Tremaine is means that she is more worthy of a higher class than Lady than Lady Tremaine so like when she gets married to the prince it's like okay she can handle this better than the increase of stature that Lady Tremaine and Drizzle, uh Drizella and Anastasia would because they don't know how to treat people that are below them, mm-hmm. which is still gross and classist, and I hate it. But like that's that's kind of the thought process that, go, that goes along with this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It also just shows that Cinderella is supposed to be the in charge of that house, right? It's mm-hmm. like she's the one who has these raw, like these natural abilities, yeah, to do it. Whereas, and like, yeah, and like we see one, she's taking care of the house already. But two, we see that at the beginning of the movie where she is like going about taking care of all the animals and stuff. And she legitimately does seem to enjoy that work and mm-hmm. that time of day before she has to deal with people. <laughs> well, when it's those specific people, she has those to deal with people. Yeah, <laughs> it makes sense why like that's her one time where she's happy. Right. Like, yeah the one time where she isn't reminded that she's a prisoner in her own home yes um but also like the fact that she enjoys doing like you know the chores and the cooking and all that again i think like snow white ties her into this idea of the ideal woman that the disney company likes to present right which i know we talked about with her compared to like the stepsisters already but like apart from just chores and cleaning, you know, she's beautiful. She's gentle. She's graceful. She sings. She has tiny feet. Like (laughs) she is like, she is what women should like. Did they also blonde? Yeah. (laughs) Like, uh, love that for us. Lady Tremaine's a good villain. She's the, (laughs) what? I was about to say she's the best. No, she's abusive. She's not the best. Like she's, she is a really, good version of that kind of villain yes. of that kind of archetype yes and it's nice it's knowing the villains that are to come and how camp they get it's really nice to see a villain that is just a straight up terrible person mm-hmm. and the film knows it yeah it's not afraid to go there with right. her and i just like i don't know why but like I don't like like I don't like what she does obviously but I appreciate like you said that they just go there with her. Yeah. Everything if, about her is cold and terrifying. Mm-hmm. If the voice performance wasn't as good as it is, this would not work. Mhm. The, the 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 performance is so reserved and so sinister and calculating and it just like you said, it's cold. It's iced fucking cold. And every time she says anything, I'm like, I need to get another blanket. My blood is ice. And even on the animation side, like the stare that she has, 
mm-hmm. the way that she looks at people and like when she's being fake sweet and fake nice like you can tell it's fake yeah that's the like that's the good part like there's no indication and she doesn't want it to seem like it's real no she wants you to know that she's fake being nice to you because she knows that she is she is the queen of this household yeah and you better know it the only villain that carries in my opinion that carries himself other okay there are two other villains because okay. there are two other villains that carry themselves with this much posture and self-confidence and just poise while just radiating cold menace nearly as well as Lady Tremaine. It's it's Maleficent mm-hmm. and it's Judge Frollo. Mm. I thought I was th- I thought you were going to say the Horned King. I haven't revisited the Horton King in a while. Fair. I just remember his, I just remember the King's vibe rather than like the energy he gives off. But like, I was thinking of Frollo when I started that sentence and I was like, Oh, right. Maleficent exists too. Yeah. You can't forget Maleficent who no. like, you know, funny enough voiced by the same woman, right? You know what that, expl- yeah. And that helps this Mm-hmm. a lot because mm-hmm. i know maleficent comes later but maleficent as an icon we'll talk about more later i was about to just start going but <laughs> but like lady tremaine is up there yeah with like the best and i think this form of disney villain gets short shrifted over the the later era classics mm-hmm. like the the renaissance era disney villains right, which where you are get, like your scar well your scars and your mm. Hades and your even like, which we'll get to in two episodes, but your Captain Hooks to an extent too, right? Yeah, yeah. Which like Captain Hook starts a trend, which we will discuss later <laughs> and more in more depth. But yeah, no, Lady Tremaine as a villain just whips so much ass. She's so good. She's so good. Ah, oh, and just makes the stakes in this movie good. real real and some and helps us sympathize mm-hmm. with Cinderella as a character and the fact that she never directly gets her hands dirty mm-hmm. and has Annabelle and Drizella, Annabella <laughs> Anastasia and Trizella do all of the dirty work for her do right. the physical dirty work for her uh-huh. and all lady Tremaine does like is um emotionally tear down uh Cinderella which is still a lot and then lock a door the only hand she raises against Cinderella is to lock her door and it's still like kind of the, one of the it's, worst things that she does that happens to Cinderella yes, in the whole absolutely. movie <laughs> absolutely oh it's so good this Man, movie's good this movie's good it's a good movie, a good movie. that's all from us this week you can find our show on apple podcasts and on spotify if you like what you heard be sure to leave us a review five stars only of course you can find me at play underscore champion on twitter and you can find me at alex underscore isaac on twitter you can also follow the show at dream deeper pod on twitter and instagram 
And you can write into the show at dreamalittledeeperpod at gmail.com. Special thanks to all our guests on today's episode. You can find Manish on Twitter at themanish89, and you can listen to his podcasts at Pod to Be You and Queer and Now on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can find Lindsay B at animequeen95 on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Morgan on Instagram at Modane. You can find Olivia on Instagram at Livy Fitzgerald. You can find Diana on Instagram at Diane E-Y-H-U and her theater company, Blackjack Rewrite Company, on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find Emily on Twitter at Emily Michelle. Thank you all so much for listening. Join us next week for our discussion of Alice in Wonderland. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers. <laughs>